Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Nikel Smith. And I'm Christina Loeb. The National Retail Federation says more people went shopping on Black Friday this year than ever before. But the jobless rate remains high in Florida, and that helped lower consumer confidence in November. University of Central Florida economist Sean Snaith says consumers are also increasingly concerned about the looming fiscal cliff. But he thinks lawmakers in Washington will stave off the combination of tax increases and spending cuts scheduled after the new year. I think we'll see, barring the fiscal cliff and barring a complete meltdown in Europe, a recovery that will continue. It'll continue in the same vein that it has been proceeding, and that is a uh, sort of below-par, slow, tepid recovery. Snaith says if the tax hikes are allowed to go into effect, that will almost certainly knock the U.S. economy back into a recession. Earlier today, President Barack Obama sent out a press release indicating how middle-class tax cuts will impact consumer spending and retailers. This comes as the term fiscal cliff has consumed headlines across the country as the deadline to make tax decisions quickly approaches. I talked with Director of the University of Florida's Bureau of Economic and Business Research, Chris McCarty, about what impact the various tax decisions could have on Florida families. He broke down what the the fiscal cliff is and explains it might be more complex than what meets the eye. What it is is a just a set of things, and there are actually quite a few things that all happen uh, right around January 1st. And in the order of magnitude uh, of the effect, the biggest one is the expiration of the Bush tax cut. So uh, those who remember back when uh, President Bush took office, he pushed for very large tax cuts. Uh, as sort of a, a, a way of, uh, it was an approach to the economy. And so uh, he pushed those through. And those actually have expired once and been extended, I believe, but they're due to expire again. And that's an awful lot of money. So it's a lot of money that the U.S. does not collect in revenue that it used to. So, for example, under President Clinton, uh, tax rates at all levels were uh, higher than they are now. In addition to the expiration of the Bush tax cuts, McCarty says the second most important aspect of the fiscal cliff has to do with people's paychecks, and he reminds taxpayers about President Obama's economic stimulus package. The Obama administration pushed through uh, some stimulus uh, in the form of a cut to your payroll taxes. So when you get paid from your employer, they uh, withhold money for uh, Social Security and Medicare, and I believe that that's around 6%, and I think that that was reduced down to 2%. So effectively, it was a way of putting money in the pockets of everyday Americans very quickly, and it did that. So that is due to expire uh, also in January. But that's not all. For what he calls the third biggest part of the fiscal cliff, McCarty coins the term sequestration, one he says many people don't understand. People may recall back in August of 2011, we were in uh, Congress was battling over uh, raising the debt ceiling. So the debt ceiling is the amount of money uh, more than what was budgeted that the U.S. can spend in any given year. And so in the U.S., uh, which is not like most countries, we actually have to vote on that. The, the, the Congress has to vote on that. So usually they just do that as a matter of course, but that particular year, 
there were some folks in the House of Representatives who said, no, we're not going to allow the U.S. to spend more money, uh, more than it budgeted. So uh, there was a lot of uh, anguish and panic over that because the U.S. was in the position of uh, defaulting on its obligations, not just to its citizens, but to its creditors. So uh, finally, the folks in the House relented and said, okay, we'll raise the debt uh, ceiling, but uh, you've got to promise that you'll come up with a way of uh, cutting our spending by $2 trillion over the next decade. And you need to form a commission to do that. And if that commission fails, uh, then these cuts will become automatic. They formed a commission. The commission failed. And now the our debt is coming due. And on January 1st of 2013, what is now its term sequestration happens. And what that means is $2 trillion gets cut over the next 10 years, a bigger share of it in the first year than the subsequent nine years. McCarty says that means defense will take about a $50 billion cut on top of cuts that have already been taken. He says a lot of other agencies will take tax cuts as well. He explains, however, those cuts could affect Floridians. Anybody who's working as a contractor for a military base or, for example, here at the university where we receive funds from the National Science Foundation or the National Institutes of Health, all these agencies are looking at cuts, and it's likely that the first thing that they would cut would be contracts that they have um, as opposed to sort of permanent employees or permanent uh, uh, arrangements. So uh, there are lots of businesses in Florida uh, that service the military, that service other agencies, and those would experience cuts. But McCarty says if the cuts like those to payroll taxes aren't extended before New Year's Day, people could see the impact on their final take-home pay. All of a sudden, uh, you'll get your paycheck, and you'll notice that your paycheck is smaller than it was uh, the previous pay period. And that's because your employer will start adjusting your withholding so that it will align with what you will owe one year from now. So that's one reason that Democrats... Uh, are willing to, as they're saying, go over the cliff, because it's not like those tax cuts are all going to happen immediately. This is certainly over time. It's going to eat away at your you know, ability to spend and your wealth. Um, but the fact of the matter is that it actually occurs over the course of a, over a year. In the meantime, Republican congressional leaders are suggesting the White House is moving further away from a deal by failing to outline specific spending cuts. Democrats say it's up to the Republicans to do that. Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner was on Capitol Hill today to meet with Republican leaders. It's post-election and pre-session in Tallahassee. Republicans have lost their complete control of the Florida legislature as Democrats made modest gains in both chambers in this month's elections. What will that mean for future policy decisions and the state's unpopular governor? What about new laws? WLRN's Phil Lotzman speaks with Tampa Bay Times Tallahassee Bureau Chief Steve Bosquet about a new day in the state capitol. So the Florida legislature definitely has a new look uh, as a result of this month's election. The Republicans lost four seats in the House, two in the Senate. There are more Democrats in Tallahassee. The GOP has lost their supermajority in both chambers. But Democrats, again, still in the minority. Will anything change in the upcoming uh, 2013 session? 
I see uh, prospects for a little bit of change, Phil, not too much. But I think uh, Democrats feel more optimistic and more energetic because their party's candidate won Florida, won the White House. They made modest gains in the legislative uh, delegation in Tallahassee. They picked up four seats in Congress. But more importantly, I think, from the Democratic perspective, is important components of the Republican agenda failed. Uh, most of those wordy and unwieldy constitutional amendments went down to defeat. Uh, people waited in line for six and seven hours to vote. And that, that's an issue that the Democrats are, are going to uh, very effectively use to their advantage in the 2013 session. So the dynamics have shifted a bit. Republicans are still in command, but they're a little bit more chastened than before the election. Rick Scott really was the the advocate of this this new voting law, which may have gotten the state in trouble. Um, how does he, as the unpopular Republican governor, uh, how is he viewed by lawmakers? Does he still have clout, even in his own party, as his popularity continues to dip? Uh, yes, he does have clout in his own party, but he's got a lot of problems. Uh, I'd say Rick Scott's biggest uh, opponent is himself. He has uh, still not connected with with many Floridians. And the important point here, you look at the calendar. This is amazing. This is the pivotal year for Rick Scott. This is what one of his top advisors described to me as the money year for Rick Scott to get an effective and very concise agenda through the legislature. Because next year, 2014, um, everything will be viewed from the prism of, uh, of a political campaign. So this is Rick Scott's last opportunity to get something accomplished that he can run on when he runs for re-election. Does he really have a viable opponent yet in the election? And, and by the way, is Charlie Crist that viable opponent? Have we been able, been able to figure that out yet, that he's going to definitely jump into this thing? We're still trying to figure that out. Uh, the answer to your first question is no, Rick Scott does not have a viable opponent at the moment. Uh, secondly, uh, I would say that Charlie Crist is a plausible candidate for governor uh, if no one else steps into the void. And Steve, there's a flurry of bills being introduced in the Capitol, some dealing with old issues like a ban on texting and driving. Others are new, such as imposing regulations on parasailing after there was a death uh, here in South Florida earlier this year. Uh, What significant legislation can we expect from Florida lawmakers uh, heading into this coming session? Well, they're going to focus on education, particularly on higher education, and again, trying to uh, retool and reconfigure the higher ed system in this state so that it better prepares young people for real careers and good-paying jobs. As, as everybody knows who lives in Florida, everybody knows a college graduate who's either unemployed or underemployed. That's a high priority. The other things you mentioned, like the, the, the ban on texting while driving, there's such a strong libertarian streak in the Florida legislature that, that there's, a, there's a great reluctance here. Uh, to impose the heavy hand of government in people's lives in certain ways. Steve Bosque is Tallahassee Bureau Chief for the Tampa Bay Times. Steve, great to catch up with you. Thanks for your time, as always. Okay, Phil. I appreciate it. Thanks. I'm Phil Latzman. Police are looking for a man they say used a knife in an attempt to rob a local college student. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Brennan McCullough has more on this. Santa Fe College Police still haven't found the man responsible for an attempted robbery that occurred in a parking lot in the southwest corner of the campus. The knife-wielding man attempted to take a student's backpack as she got out of her truck at about 11 a.m. Wednesday. Santa Fe College Chief of Police Ed Book says the student was able to get away quickly and alert police. The victim did a real good job um, getting away from the suspect. She struggled with the suspect. She kicked him. She did receive injuries um, at that time. And uh, she didn't lose her backpack. Third-year student Chris Baugh received an alert about the attack via text message and says he was impressed by the quick response of campus police. 
I was actually in class, and I got the text, and then, like, everyone's phone started going off. So I thought it was kind of cool that we all know that it happened. Campus police passed out suspect descriptions and details of the crime to students and staff today, and Chief Book says they're still looking for leads. Today, we've been following up around the clock. Uh, we've been working um, basically 24-7 last night, following up on leads, and um, hopefully today we'll get some additional uh, information. Updates on the investigation can be found on the Santa Fe College website, sfcollege.edu. Reporting for Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Brandon McCullough. Safety is a primary concern now that the holidays are nearing. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Bianca Bahamandez reports on how people can keep their homes and their families safe. The Alachua County Sheriff's Office has released some safety tips that people should follow to ensure the safety of their homes and themselves this holiday season. Crime Prevention Deputy Carrie Gallup says that people should keep their homes well lit with the idea that someone is home. Real important to make your house look like it's constantly lived in. Someone is always home. Keeping lights on, even if you have to put a timer on certain living room lights and Christmas lights, making sure that those lights are turned on at certain times of the day to give someone the aspect that if you're working late that day, give somebody the idea that there's someone home. Gallup also says that people should keep gifts and packages away from windows so they cannot be seen from outside. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Bianca Bahamandez. The state of Florida is launching a new billboard and website campaign to try and educate young people about the dangers of distracted and drunk driving. As Florida Public Radio's Jessica Palombo reports, the Be Ready for the Road Ahead campaign is targeting drivers who are most likely to die in car crashes. Drivers under age 20 are three times more likely than older drivers to have a fatal car crash. That's according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Linda Silva's 19-year-old son, Alex, was one of them. In 2009, he was at a friend's house 90 seconds away from his parents' house in South Florida. He'd been drinking beer. It was raining when he started the drive home. They had probably done it before and gotten home safely. And when we talk to DUI offenders, they all think they're going to make it. And they do. Most of them do. Alex was in college working toward a degree in sports management or pharmacy. His mother says he was a good person, but he made a couple of bad decisions. He dropped his cell phone, went to pick it up, went over the swale, overcorrected and hit the tree in the median and died instantly. He was about 45 seconds away from his driveway at the time of the crash. Silva is the co-founder of Angels on Your Shoulders, a nonprofit that tries to prevent more deaths by sharing stories like Alex's. She spoke at the Florida Capitol on Wednesday. That pain does not stop. It never goes away. It's in our blood. It's in our cells. It's, we are in love with our children. We don't want to lose them. Preventing more deaths is also the goal of a new state campaign that's putting up billboards all over Florida. The boards donated by the Florida Outdoor Advertising Association will direct people to a website, myfirstlicense.com. Sue Hawley, the president of the Florida Association of DUI Programs, said the site has lots of information about general road rules, drunk driving, and distracted driving. It is important to start very early with raising the level of awareness of drivers and passengers to recognize the dangers of all activities and actions that can cause even a fraction of a second's distraction. Holly says that's all it takes to cause a preventable fatal crash. 
She then praised a texting ban bill that State Senator Nancy Dietert has filed in the Florida legislature. The bill has failed to pass at least twice before, but the National Transportation Safety Board continues to urge Florida and several other states to make it illegal to text and drive. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Jessica Palumbo. Several dozen local health care officials gathered in Jacksonville on Wednesday for a symposium on crisis and risk communication in public health. As Kevin Mearshart from member station WJCT reports, much of the discussion centered on the Duval County tuberculosis outbreak and how public communication of the situation could have been better handled. Participants discussed at what point information needs to be distributed to the public, either through healthcare providers or the media. They also discussed how to get important information out while still protecting patients' private rights. State Secretary of Health John Armstrong says it was a good conversation and he wants to make certain Floridians get the information they need. He says that includes releasing any reports from the Centers for Disease Control regarding a public health concern. The second uh, area is that we will engage thought leaders within communities as emerging health threats occur so that we can get input into how best to communicate those threats and protect the health of people in those communities. The health department was criticized for not quickly releasing the CDC report on the possible TB outbreak in the homeless community in Duval County. The symposium was the first held by Dr. Armstrong. He says he'll hold them on a monthly basis around the state on various issues. I'm Kevin Mershart in Jacksonville. The Obama administration is releasing an ambitious roadmap to slash the the global spread of AIDS by getting more people treated sooner and accelerating the use of other proven tools. Today's report outlines how progress could continue if U.S. spending remains constant, something far from certain as Congress and President Barack Obama struggle to avert looming budget cuts at year's end. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton says the plan shows her call for an AIDS-free generation is a goal within reach. According to the report, even the hardest-hit countries could begin turning the tide of the epidemic over the next three to five years. Some 34 million people worldwide are living with HIV, and 2.5 million were, effect- were infected last year. AIDS Awareness Day is this Saturday. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Drew Bryan has more on the history of AIDS Awareness Day and how you can help prevent the spread of HIV and AIDS. AIDS Awareness Day is this Saturday and reminds us that HIV and AIDS is still affecting millions around the world. Almost 5,000 people are affected by HIV and AIDS in our listening area alone. The first AIDS Awareness Day was observed on December 1st, 1988, and has occurred on this day every year since. This year's themes for AIDS Awareness Day is Getting to Zero, and aims to educate people on how they can play a part in reducing new HIV infections through prevention, treatment, and care. Getting tested is one big suggestion health officials stress to prevent the spread of this illness. HIV AIDS coordinator for the Alachua County Health Center, Bobby Davis, says although huge progress has been made in the treatment of the illness, the stigma that comes along with HIV AIDS can deter people from getting tested. I mean, that's a big step to say, I could be infected, I need to find this out. And what usually motivates people to test is they come up against AIDS somewhere in their life, somebody they know is infected. The senior science advisor for the Department of State and University of Florida's chair for AIDS research, Dr. Goodenow, 
says that there have been two major developments in AIDS research recently, and one of them is treatment as soon as possible for those infected. Early treatment uh, not only has good outcomes for the infected individual, but it also helps to uh, prevent spread of the virus. So treat to prevent um, has been a very successful um, initiative and that is now being extended in different parts of the world. The other big advancement in HIV-AIDS research is the modest yet successful data that came out of a vaccine trial in Thailand. According to Dr. Goodenow, the number of people who are surviving long-term with HIV worldwide is improving, while death rates are decreasing. While this is good news, Dr. Goodenow has other concerns with HIV-AIDS and how it is affecting our youth. It's moving into a younger population. Um, and of uh, people mostly like in their um, teens and, and early adulthood. And I think that's a serious problem that needs to be addressed in terms of surveillance and, and education. Dr. Goodenow says the prevention of HIV takes on many forms, and people need to utilize all the different ways to protect themselves and others from this illness. Well, prevention of HIV uh, is really multifaceted, and certainly education and practicing safe sex is, is a very important component of, of prevention. Um, being tested and knowing your HIV status is also incredibly important. The Alatro County Health Department is one of the many places in northern Florida people can get tested for HIV and AIDS. Dr. Goodenow stresses how when people become educated and get tested, they help decrease the spread of AIDS. You can protect yourself from infection, and if you suspect and you should know your HIV status. And I think it's, it means a lot to the people who are doing research in the field to know that there's, there is a positive impact um, for the health of people in Florida, people in the United States, and people around the world. For someone who has spent their whole research career working with HIV, Dr. Goodenow feels the awareness that has developed over the last 25 to 30 years is so important in keeping the virus and infection in the front of people's minds. According to the HIV-AIDS coordinator for the Latrio County Health Center, AIDS Awareness Day has helped more people around the world get the treatment they need. It, it raises awareness. It reminds people that AIDS hasn't gone away yet. We've made some huge progress as far as treatment goes. We figure about 50% of the people worldwide that need treatment are in treatment. To learn about events occurring in the community for AIDS Awareness Day or to get information about getting tested, contact the Alachua County Health Center. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Drew Bryan. According to the U.S. Department of Higher Education Center, prescription drug abuse is on the rise on most college campuses. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Sarah Samuels reports on how the University of Florida is tackling this growing issue on campus. The University of Florida is known as an idyllic place of learning in higher education. However, a growing trend across the nation reveals a disturbing rise in prescription drug abuse among U.S. college students. For many, buying stimulants like Adderall or Ritalin is only a phone call away. It's really easy. I mean, all you, if, you ask, if you ask one person, they say, oh yeah, do you know somebody? And they go, yep, I know this person. Next thing you know, you can have Adderall within the next 30 minutes if you want it. UF's Counseling and Wellness Center Substance Abuse Coordinator Joan Scully says she has noticed a significant increase in students with substance abuse problems. Her goal is to find the reasons behind the increase. 
part of what I'm interested in is sort of the instant message generation, the fact that students don't have the kind of patience and distress tolerance based on the fact that they're in constant communication and they're kind of getting things met, needs met in an instant way through Facebook and text messaging and those kinds of things. So I'm wondering about distress tolerance and um, the instant relief that's, that happens with all the technology we have. Scully says the main issue is most students don't understand the dangers behind using illegal prescription drugs. I think students feel compelled to use whatever is within their um, grasp to do well. So on one level, it makes sense to me that students would try some different things to to help them study and do well. I think the the real issue with... um, Stimulants is that they're addictive, so students who may have a propensity towards addiction can get addicted, Um, and the side effects for stimulants can be very significant. Yet some people still believe the positives outweigh the negatives when it comes to being able to study. University of Florida student Ryan says he's taken Adderall a few times, and he would do it again. For me, it made it uh, so that I was able to stay up later, I was able to concentrate more, and then um, the next day, even after I could get two or three hours of sleep and I'd wake up the next morning and I'd feel like I got a full night's sleep instead of just feeling like I had like two or three hours and it just made it to that I was able to focus and get all the work that I needed to get done um, a lot earlier than if I was to have waited. Ryan says he's a good student with a high GPA, but sometimes he feels like he needs something extra in order to focus on all of his schoolwork. I mean, it's it, it makes it a way, way easier if you're studying for a whole bunch of stuff going on at the same time. I mean, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to take that much where you're freaking out about it. Just It's that little bit just to sort of take off the, uh, the lack of concentration just to like get you to jump like right into your studying and not like worry about all the other stuff going on before it. However, other people find it easy to say no to prescription drugs. University of Florida senior Christina did not have a positive experience with Adderall, and she says she will never take it again. I couldn't help but clean and do, like, everything but study. And my my sweetmates had told me it was because, like, I wasn't concentrating on studying to begin with. So I tried to do that. But, like, instead I became obsessed with cleaning to the point of, like, using a toothbrush to clean stuff. And then I I ended up studying later, which was fine. But then I stayed up um, all night. Uh, Songs were, like, just playing over and over and over and over in my head. Like, the same ones. And I couldn't stop. I couldn't turn it off. Couldn't sleep. So by the time I went to my exam, I was utterly exhausted. There is good news for students who find they are addicted to illegal prescription pills. Joan Scully says the Counseling and Wellness Center offers a variety of programs for those who need help. The most recent addition is a program called Back on Track, which is a comprehensive program. It includes drug testing, lasts for four to six months. The uh, students go through psychoeducational modules, individual counseling, um, and group counseling. So it's a very comprehensive program, and that's a brand new addition this semester. Students should also be aware that having illegal prescription drugs is a felony charge. According to the University of Florida Police Department, the maximum penalty for possessing illegal drugs is a $5,000 fine and up to five years in jail. For Florida's 89.1 WFTFM, I'm Sarah Samuels. Florida's subsidized child care programs for the working poor have 68,000 kids on their waiting lists. And as the state tries to help, it has only muddied the waters. Margie Menzel reports. 
In late June, just before the new budget year, Florida's 31 early learning coalitions got the news, changes in their funding. One of the biggest losers was the Early Learning Coalition of Miami-Dade and Monroe Counties, which lost $3.7 million starting six days later. 1,000 kids lost their child care. The Early Learning Coalition of the Big Bend lost $600,000. Executive Director Lauren Faison saved the kids' places but had to cut support for the providers. When you lose so much money with such a short period of time, you have to plug that hole somehow. And it was, do you cut children or do you stop supporting our businesses? And that's not a debate anybody wants to find themselves in, that quality versus quantity. We need both. The businesses are the providers who must meet certain standards for the coalitions to refer to them. The kids are children of the working poor. The idea is to prepare them for school while helping their parents hold jobs. But Shailene Fagunda who owns the Inter-American Learning Center in Miami, says the cuts threaten the whole network of providers statewide. That's the domino. When I start losing children, my ratios are going to go up. I'm going to start combining classes. That's how the ratios are going to end up going up that way. Eventually, if it keeps going down, I'm going to let go staff, and eventually I'm going to close my doors. Some areas, like Broward and Southwest Florida, got more money, not less. But this is just the first year. The state plans to phase in five more years of cuts and increases. Miami-Dade, for instance, will lose another $22 million. So now all the coalitions have united, asking the state to freeze the cuts. Miami-Dade Coalition Director Avilio Torres says the areas that lost money should plug the holes as best they can. And those that gained money should keep it. Honestly, this is so difficult. It's much more difficult than just saying we're going to take money from some and give it to others. There's, there's a whole domino effect that takes place, and we really don't want to see anyone else going through that. Leon County Commissioner Brian Deloge chairs the board of the Big Bend Coalition. He's also president of the Florida Association of Counties. It doesn't make sense to him to cut some programs when there are waiting lists all over the state. I realize a lot of people, you know, from a conservative standpoint think, well, maybe this isn't where we should be spending tax dollars. Let me make the argument here that says every time we help somebody out with child care, we're putting somebody to work. And for every time we deny somebody child care, this is somebody that cannot go to work because they can't afford to. The State Office of Early Learning didn't respond to requests for comment, but provided a handout saying the formula will be fair in the long run. A spokeswoman for Governor Rick Scott said he looks forward to developing a fair reimbursement system with early learning coalitions throughout Florida. I'm Margie Menzel in Tallahassee. The health of Tampa Bay has been on the rebound in recent years, but there's still a lot to be done to bring back the natural fisheries. So groups of volunteers are spending their mornings helping to create oyster reefs in an offshore nature preserve near Riverview. Steve Newborn from member station WUSF in Tampa recently spent some time with them. I'm standing in the parking lot of Williams Park where a group of high school students are shoveling oyster shells and tubes that will be used to create oyster beds in the bay. We're in the shadow of US-41. Trucks are rumbling by. And on the other side towards the bay, you can see plumes of smoke coming out from several phosphate processing plants. We're in the shadow of several gypsum stacks looming in the distance. So this isn't what you call your pristine spot. 
The mission of the nonprofit group Tampa Baywatch this day is simple. Shovel 14 tons of oyster shells into PVC tubes, bag them, and transport them six miles to an island in the middle of Tampa Bay. There, living oysters will attach themselves to the shells and naturally filter the bay water. Today, they're getting some help. A busload of students from Tampa's King High School rumbles into the parking lot, bringing a lot of eager young hands who are ready to whittle down the 14-ton mountain. Tampa Bay Watch Habitat Restoration Director Sarah Herndon gives them a few tips. So it's a great project. We really appreciate you guys helping out. Um, I can show you how to do what to do. Um, we are limited by the number of PVC tubes that we have and uh, shovels. So you're just going to kind of have to find a job, find a niche, rotate in, pair up, work in groups. Also giving the kids a few tips is Betsy Ilfeld. You take the oyster shells and you put them inside one of these tubes that has a bag over it. You turn it over, pull the tube out, and you have your container of oysters and you tie it in. This repetitive work is seemingly endless this gray morning. They haul the bags to a boat at a dock at the end of the parking lot where it will be taken to a nature preserve in the middle of Tampa Bay. Ilfeld says they're encasing the shells in sturdy webbing because otherwise, waves from storms will just scatter the oysters on the bottom of the bay. Because when they tried just laying oysters down loose, they found out the storms came over and flattened them. So they had very little value in terms of wave attenuation and collecting sediment. So then they went to this method. So we have a Charlie or a Francis or a Jean or a Wilma all stays in one place where they want it to be. They're going to the Schultz Nature Preserve just offshore Tico's Big Bend Power Plant. Its final destination is the colorfully named Whiskey Stump Key. You brought a jug and money, left it on a stump during Prohibition, and lo and behold, your money disappeared and whiskey showed up. Wow, must be magic. <laughs> must have been magic. Our government couldn't figure out how to stop it. The whiskey runners are long gone, replaced by boaters like Josh Lundy. Lundy pulls up a Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission flat-bottom skiff to the dock. He's loading up the shells to bring them to Whiskey Stump Key. Today, he'll make the 12-mile round-trip journey four times. Hey, how many bags can you fit in this boat? About 120, 130. Do you have an idea how many pounds that is? They average uh, 30 to 40 pounds a bag. It could be anywhere from 2,000 to 3,500 pounds. I never realized it, but oysters breed and grow on oyster shells. They take the calcium from these shells, and they will use that to grow their own shells. And then by doing that, they make the oyster bar bigger, larger, larger, and stronger. And how important are oysters in the whole ecology of the bay down here? Um, they're pretty important. They clean the water, their filter feeder. So any of the small particulates that are in the water from either fish, birds, or us, they filter out. That natural cleansing of the bay is the reason why people like Ilfeld are volunteering their mornings in this dock parking lot. Because over 15 or 20 years, you've seen the bay improve. And you know it's not the crappy green it used to be. And, you know, they had to stop dumping our sewage in. But you come back five years later or ten years later and you see that the stuff is actually growing and it actually works. And people like Ilfeld will keep volunteering their time to hack away at a mountain of fossilized oyster shells because they feel it will make a difference. 
I'm Steve Newborn in Tampa. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Nikel Smith. And I'm Christina Loeb.